Now let us turn together to the Word of God as we read from the book of Psalms, the fourth Psalm, Psalm number four. Now while you are finding the Psalm, may I say that the reason for its choice this morning is that you will notice in verse four that David gives a command to the people of God in your anger do not sin. And you will notice from the New Testament reading that we are in that very subject of anger and the fruits of anger uh, this morning. And so this psalm has been appropriately chosen for that theme. Psalm 4, a psalm of David, answer me when I call to you, O my righteous God. Give me relief from my distress. Be merciful to me and hear my prayer. How long, O men, will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love delusions and seek false gods? Know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call to him. In your anger, do not sin. When you are on your bed, search your hearts and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and trust in the Lord. Many are asking, who can show us any good? Let the light of your face shine upon us, O Lord. You have filled my heart with greater joy than when their grain and new wine abound. I will lie down and sleep in peace, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Thanks be to God for this portion of his own inspired and inerrant word. Boys and girls, uh, the New Testament reading is from Matthew 5, and we are reading the section from verse 21 to verse 26. Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. As the Lord Jesus in this section begins to deal with the first of several commandments, having spoken of the importance of the law in the previous verses, he now turns to illustrate what he means by the Christian needing to fulfill all the righteousness of the law in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. From verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way or he may hand you over to the judge And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. 
I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to him. Now, one of the most fascinating and arresting facts about the Sermon on the Mount, as we have been looking at it on these Sunday mornings, is that it is so amazingly contemporary. You have picked up your newspaper in the last few days, no doubt, whether it's the Florida Times Union or whatever it might be, and you've read through the pages of that newspaper. And I wonder what you've seen in those pages. Is it not the very same things in substance that we are reading on these Sunday mornings and beginning to read, particularly this morning, in the Sermon on the Mount? There are accounts, are there not, of killings and murder. There are fearful descriptions of the disintegration of society through the widespread marital unfaithfulness in our generation and our country today, adultery. There are descriptions, moreover, of promises being broken on every hand, whether it is between one individual and another or the great business corporations of our age, or internationally between one nation and its fellow nation. There are horrifying accounts of retaliation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There are stories about vengeance as those who have wronged a particular person or country, are acted upon with great severity. And all of these things, so amazingly contemporary today, are actually found here in the substance of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. Have you noticed as you've been looking over this chapter on these Sunday mornings as I've been preaching that the Lord Jesus deals with the subject of killing and murder in verse 21? with adultery in verse 27, with divorce in verse 31, with this whole question of keeping promises in verse 33, with the spirit of retaliation and with enemies in verses 38 and verses 43 respectively. It's woven into the very web and woof of Christ's teaching. Now, you see, as we come this morning to the first of these illustrations that Jesus gives us of how the Christian should live specifically in the world today, he's homing in, as it were, upon a matter that is making headline news in our newspapers and upon our television screens today. Verse 21, the beginning of our reading. You have heard that it was said by the men of old, you shall not kill. But I, he says, say to you. And there follows the most amazing exposition and elucidation of that ancient sixth, command, sixth commandment of God's law that we could possibly desire. It is the first of six powerful illustrations that introduce the subject of how you and I are to keep God's law today in order to be salt and light in the world around us. 
My dear friend, if you and I begin to live as our Savior is going to explain to us this morning, our lives will begin to be headline news in the communities where we live and among our friends and our neighbors. And they are going to say to us, now what makes this man so different in his reaction to others, this woman in her relationships with her friends? And they're going to find the answer that you and I are following the Lord Jesus and our lives are light, shining in the darkness, salt, preserving this rotten society from its corruption and putrefaction. My dear friends, this morning we could not possibly be dealing with a more relevant and powerful subject than our Savior deals with in verses 21 to 26. How do I handle myself in the light of this whole subject of anger? Now before we look at what our Savior says, may I remind you that he is not, and I repeat not, correcting the Old Testament law. In each one of these six illustrations that he is going to give us and we are going to explore on these coming Sunday mornings, he uses the formula, you have heard that it was said, but I say unto you. Now, of course, some very superficial Christians and superficial commentators come to these words of Jesus and they say, aha, here is the clear example that Jesus is changing the old law. He's saying, this was all right for Old Testament times, but I'm telling you something quite different. Now, of course, as I mentioned last Sunday morning, he's doing nothing of the kind. And you can make no greater error in your understanding of this passage than to assume that Jesus is correcting the law of God. How could that be possible? This law of God that sets forth God's character, that says to us, this is what I am like. This is what I want you to be like. How could that standard possibly ever change in any generation, in any society? No, you see, what he is doing is this. He is saying, you have heard that the scribes and Pharisees have interpreted this law in a certain way. But I will give you the true and real and inward interpretation of it that will search all your hearts and minds to their very depths. And as John Calvin said on this passage, Jesus is not here a new legislator, but rather a faithful expositor of God's holy law. Now this passage then, it seems to me, divides into three parts. There is, first of all, before us, the Pharisees' misunderstanding of the Sixth Commandment. And you have that in verse 21. And then, secondly, there is Christ's explanation of the commandment, and that is in verse 22. And then, thirdly, in the passage, there are two practical illustrations and applications in verses 23 through 26. Now let us, as usual, look at each one of these in turn. First of all, there is the Pharisees' misunderstanding of the Sixth Commandment. Now you remember what the Lord Jesus is doing here. He has said to his followers, to us today, 
If you are truly followers of mine, you do not set aside the Old Testament and God's law. You live it out to its very fullest in your daily Christian lives. Well, the disciples might have said to Jesus, this is all very well. We've grasped the principle, but where is the application? Give us some illustration of how you want us to live in the world today, of how our lives will be really distinctive in this society. And so Jesus immediately proceeds with the illustration and the application. And it relates to the sixth commandment. And he draws the very words you remember from Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. You shall not kill. One of the most precise and one of the shortest commandments in the whole of God's holy law. It's, it's amplified, as you may know, a little later in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 5, verse 17, and chapter 16, verse 18. But specifically, what does it mean? You shall not kill. Well, it is clearly a prohibition upon murder. You shall not murder, the original commandment intended. Now, let's be quite clear about this. You see, it's not a commandment that forbids the taking of life in general, for example, in self-defense. If someone molests me and attacks me and their intention by knife or by weapon of some kind is to take away my life, this commandment does not say to me that I may not act in self-defense, that I may not kill this other person if it should prove necessary in order to prevent him from killing me. Of course it doesn't say that. And it doesn't say either that we should all be pacifists. Now, it's important that we should grasp that. The, the scripture teaches nowhere that the Christian is to be a pacifist, that war is always and everywhere wrong, that the taking of another person's life in the defense of one's country is a great evil in God's sight. Now, of course, it's very sad whenever human life has to be terminated. And it's part of the fallen world in which we live. It's not a perfect world. And these circumstances arise where a country has to go to war and defense is necessary and killing has to take place. And the Christian, very sadly, has to participate in that. Now, it is no ground then for pacifism. But you see, the Pharisees' view of this commandment was that they said, aha, all that we need to do to fulfill it is that we must avoid murder. At all costs, we must not murder someone else, an enemy or anyone else. And they limited it to the act of killing alone. Now let me remind you that this was completely in keeping with the Pharisees' whole attitude to the law of God. It was pure externalism but they were interested in. And you see this again and again, don't you, in the Gospels, where Jesus describes them as people who had a meticulous carefulness with tithing and set prayers and the external commandments. They would never be caught stealing. They would never be caught murdering. But they had no attention, you see, to the inward spirit of the law. Oh, how very easy it is to live like that, isn't it? To say as you stand before this commandment of God, 
But I have never murdered another person physically, therefore I have kept it. And God must be really pleased with me this morning. But you see, the point is this, that the Pharisees had totally misunderstood the depths and dimensions of this great commandment of the Lord. He is not interested simply with what happens with my hand, but with my heart. And there is a world of difference, my dear Christian friends, between those two things. Do you not see the Pharisees' attitude illustrated, as I say, all through the New Testament scriptures? You remember how that attitude came out in Mark chapter 3, just to take one illustration. Jesus was there in the synagogue, in the church, and it was a Sabbath day, the Jewish Saturday. And he administered in that synagogue, and there in the audience was a man, a poor, wretched man with a withered hand. And Jesus saw him. Maybe he was right at the front of the synagogue. And Jesus, knowing that the Pharisees and scribes were there, and that they were critical of his healing upon the Sabbath day, said to the man, stretch forth your hand. And immediately as the man did it, evidently believing in the power of the Lord Jesus to heal, the hand was restored whole again. But what happened in the hearts of these Pharisees and scribes? who were so strict in their observance of the Sabbath law, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. They said in their hearts, this man is breaking the law of God. How dare he do this thing? And Mark says they immediately went out and plotted how they might kill him. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is interested not in the mere externalism of the heart, I'm sorry, of the hand, but he is interested in the motions of the heart. And you can obey the commandment to its fullest extent, but equally have a heart within that is full of the very thing the commandment forbids. Inner poisonous anger. A murderous spirit. And this was the misunderstanding, you see, of the Pharisees. Now let's turn secondly to Christ's explanation of the sixth commandment in verse 22. Now isn't this an astonishing teach teaching? I tell you, he says, that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. And again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, which means in Aramaic, you fool, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone, I'm sorry, it means nitwit, or someone who is lacking in ordinary common sense. But anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the hell of fire. Now, do you see, my dear friends, what Jesus is doing? as he peels back layer upon layer of the meaning of the law of God. He is uncovering the depths of this commandment. He is revealing how conformity to it is a much greater thing 
than what I do with my hand or with my body. It is something that far surpasses the external righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. But I say to you, if you are even angry inside with someone, you have already gone down the road that leads to murder. Now let me remind you first that not all anger is evil. You might say, well, whenever I am angry about anything at all, then it means that Jesus says, I am condemned. I am in danger of the judgment. And quite clearly, this is not the case. There are certain kinds of anger that may be justified. You remember Jesus healing the man with the withered hand that I mentioned a few moments ago. Well, the same passage tells us that Jesus was angry with them in spirit because of their hardness of heart. And clearly he was not sinning. Or later in his ministry, you remember the cleansing of the temple on two separate occasions. One before the incident of the healing of the man with the withered hand and one at the end of his ministry. He was angry on both occasions. And it was an anger that was justified. Or in our Old Testament psalm, Psalm 4, David reminds us that we may be angry, but we must be careful that that anger does not become sin in the sight of God. There is a righteous anger, which may be the mature expression of our moral being as we see God's law broken brazenly and his commandments trodden upon and the wickedness of men knowing no bounds, the Christian inwardly is angry because he is zealous for the glory of God. But with that anger is also a compassion for the sinner in his need. I remember reading in one of the great missionary annals of the church about Temple Gairdner at the beginning of this century, the 20th century, one of the great missionaries to Muslims in Cairo. On one occasion, his biographer tells us that he was cycling down a street on his bicycle and he saw an ugly character beating up a little boy in front of him. And he says, I rode my bicycle right into the man and I became a cropper too. But it felt good. There is a righteous anger and there is a place for it. But brethren, you see, Jesus is telling us in this passage but there is also an unrighteous anger, which is the root that leads to all the bitter fruits of hatred and murder in the action. Well, what is this? It's the spirit of bitterness that begins to grow in the human heart. Pride. And someone puts that pride down and I begin to resent it. It's the envy that I feel of someone else. It's the jealousy. And you see, when all these things begin to work in our hearts, it leads to the spirit that begins to say, I could murder that person. And I want to ask you this morning, have you not been down this road? Oh, my dear Christian friend, you have, haven't you? I would be very surprised if there is a single person in this church, however mature you are in Christ, 
where someone has not so exercised your patience and tried you inwardly that you haven't said in spirit, Oh, I could murder him. And Jesus says you are in the very greatest of danger indeed. You see, he describes it. Did you notice in that verse 22 there is a progression? He says you begin to be angry with that person without cause. Some of our translations have the words without cause in it. Some other translations have taken it out altogether because the manuscript evidence isn't very good for it. But in the one case, what a standard it is to be angry with someone without cause. In the other case, it's an even higher standard to be angry anyway. And it begins with that root of bitterness and pride and envy and jealousy. And Jesus says you're in danger. And then the second stage is that you begin to insult that person. You begin to think about him in your mind and you even say it in words. Rocker! What a nitwit! What an empty head he is! Abusive language. And then the third and most dangerous stage of all. You see that poisonous, burning hatred has come to its full fruit. And in this swear word expression of the ancient world of great contempt, you say, you fool. And that in the ancient world wasn't just the casual thing it is to say, oh, what a fool he is. We say when someone has gone astray with regret in our hearts. It was one of the strongest swear word expressions of Jesus' time. And you see, the causeless anger has become an expression of contempt, and that expression of contempt in turn has become abusive vilification of that person's character. And this, says Jesus, is the seed of which murder is the fruit. And the difference, you see, between Jesus' view of the commandment and the Pharisees' view of the commandment is right here. That the Christian needs a heart so transformed by the grace of Christ that we will not be party not only to murder, but to even the vicious thoughts that bring that action to its birth. What a standard, my dear friends, this is. A conformity to this sixth commandment that is inward, that so far surpasses the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, it's like light to darkness. And when you and I begin to live with that attitude in society around us, People begin to look up and they say, what makes this person so different? He is a man or a woman who clearly says no to every thought involving hatred, who will not be party to this gossip, this vilification of a man's character, this destruction of this woman's character. Because it's totally out of keeping with the Christian's standard of obedience to the law of God. 
The commandment has laid hold of your heart and mind and turned it inside out. And isn't this shown through all the pages of the New Testament, my dear friends? What does Paul say writing to Titus? He says, you used to live like this in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But now, he says, it's all changed. Or in Galatians 5, he says, what characterizes the man of the world is hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, works of the flesh. But what should characterize you is the fruit of the Spirit in love and joy and peace and meekness and gentleness, this wonderful ninefold fruit of God's own grace in your lives. Writing to the Ephesians in chapter 4, verses 31 and following, he says, get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. The sixth commandment. But be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, as God in Christ has forgiven you. Neglect of the inwardness of this commandment was the great condemnation and error of the Pharisees. My dear Christian friend, are you guilty of that neglect as well? You know I have known some Christian people who show the same characteristics and they would be shocked if they knew I thought that of them. They are ready to measure their own spirituality perhaps by their knowledge of Scripture and the Reformed faith. Or in other cases, it might be Christians who measure their spirituality by their avoidance of pleasures and worldly things. Oh, I never do this and I never do that. They are proud to tell you. Yet the same so-called spiritual people evidence harsh and hateful thoughts about others and come in their relationships with others to a judgmental spirit upon them. And I want to tell you this morning that as I understand these words of the Lord Jesus, the spirit of lovelessness and the spirit of bitterness toward a fellow Christian is as offensive to God as is the very act of murder itself. And we need the words of the wise man in Proverbs 4 verse 3 to keep our heart with all diligence. And the words of the psalmist in Psalm 141 set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the doors of my lips. Jesus' interpretation of the sixth commandment gives an infinitely deeper insight and one more costly than we could have ever known before. 
Now let's turn finally as I finish this morning from the Pharisees' misinterpretation and Jesus' true interpretation to verses 23 to 26 where he gives us two practical applications. Now do you notice how well balanced these applications are? One takes us into the church and the other takes us into the court, doesn't it? He says, I want to show you exactly what I mean by your keeping of this commandment, going to church, going to court, if you like. And in some ways, this is like the vertical hold button on your television set and the horizontal hold button. You know these little buttons at the back of your set? Sometimes when you get these lines that flash down the screen, you've got to go and adjust it. Well, you see, one of these illustrations is the vertical hold and the other is the horizontal hold. And unless you and I keep both dimensions in our lives, we are in trouble. The first illustration, going to church. Here is the man who has a cause of difference that is serious with his fellow Christian, his brother in the Lord, and he comes and he sits in the congregation and he thinks it doesn't matter. And he tries to worship God there. And Jesus says, it does matter. Oh, my dear brother, he says, get up and go out of the church. Even though the service hasn't finished, get on your feet and put it right with your brother because it affects your relationship with God, the vertical hold. And it's far less important to keep God waiting than it is to put right a bitter and hateful and spiteful spirit. Do you and I realize that sufficiently? And then you see Jesus gives us that second illustration of going to court. The man is being taken to court by his creditor whom he owes a great sum. And Jesus says, stop and think. Make for a settlement out of court rather than go to that extreme. Now, of course, he's not advising us as Christians in our legal dealings that we must always make settlements out of court. Of course not. But he's saying that human relationships for a Christian are so important in society around us that we should seek to keep those relationships right at all costs and seek reconciliation urgently, he says, because the spirit of anger will simmer and fester and spoil your life and the life of another if you don't. In other words, if we want to keep the sixth commandment and avoid murder in God's sight, we must take every possible positive step to live in peace and love in the church and outside of it as well. And the urgency of all this is that it affects our relationship with God. So in conclusion, let me draw these lines together. Did you stand before the commandment as you read it at the beginning of this service and say, Lord, that's one up for me? Think again. 
What hope do I have, O Lord, I say inwardly, for a righteousness surpassing that of the scribes and Pharisees? I find it so easily given to give an external obedience, but so difficult to give an obedience of the heart. And the answer, you see, is that I must find the lordship of Christ over all my life. I must humble myself and say only he has the right to look within. No human court can legislate against anger. They can only legislate against the outward act. But my Lord has the right to look within to my private thoughts and my inward disposition and see what goes on in my personal life, in my family life, in my business life. And I have to say, Lord, I want your lordship even there so that I can be salt and light to those around me. And I need that new heart righteousness that only he can give. My dear friend, if you are here in this service this morning and not a Christian, you will strive in vain to find this spirit in your life. For it is God who comes to us as we are penitent before the cross of his Son, and he says to us, I will put my law in your heart, and I will write it in your inmost parts, so that you can obey me with an inwardness of obedience to my holy law. Thank God. It is our only hope, our only ground of confidence in that day when the book shall be opened and the secrets of all hearts be made known. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have looked at these things, there is not one of us but feels that we have broken thy holy law in all its inwardness and powerful application. And we would seek grace like the psalmist to keep watch over our lips and to keep a door upon what we say. Give us that grace, O Lord, as we follow Christ for his name's sake. Amen.